one of the projects that has been ongoing since August 15th when the Taliban really just sort of pack-manned their way into Kabul is the University of Chicago. I've been working with them for almost 10 years. The State Department has been supporting them to do a lot of work in the National Museum and with this mobile museums project that we've talked about of sending our artifacts out to schools. And they helped produce the Nicholsburg book. They've been a very close contact. I kind of refer to them as the dream team for me. And they have been using declassified satellite imagery to monitor the archaeological landscape as a way to track what is happening to Afghanistan's archaeological sites now that there's no one on the ground to be able to verify what's happening. Are sites being looted? Are sites being destroyed through bulldozing? Are new buildings going up on old Balahisars? You can see all of this through very high-definition satellite imagery. That's something that's ongoing, and I hope we'll continue for many months to come because that's very important information because that's really going to touch on the illegal traffic of antiquities out of Afghanistan and we're already expecting to see a lot of that. You can't stretch your legs in Herat without kicking a poet in the ass. That's what the Emperor Babur had to say about the city in the 15th century. Quite a vote of confidence from someone who conquered Central Asia, Afghanistan, and India. If Kabul is Afghanistan's political and economic capital, Herat is certainly the country's cultural heart. It's a city of poetry readings and film festivals and imposing 15th century Timurid structures, like the famous citadel that rises from the crowded marketplace in the center. Baked ochre, tan bricks, rhomboid ramparts, cylindrical towers, square walls, and windows in the shapes of rectangles and circles. The architects of the Citadel seem to have been inspired by every shape there is. It looks utterly dreamy against the typically bright blue skies. But the Citadel did not always look so grand. In this two-part episode on Herat, Lori and I talk about the exhilarating work to restore the once-crumbling Citadel, and the perils she faced along the way, including gunfire and bombings. We also talk about the unknowns, now that the city is under the thumb of the Taliban, and its dignified residents are not scared to speak their minds and take to the streets. This is Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Today, we're continuing on Laura's journey into Afghanistan. If you're new to this podcast, we recommend going back to start with episode one. For everyone else, welcome back. Let's jump in. We're going to talk about Herat today. Yeah. But there's something on your mind. What's on your mind? Yeah, you know, there's a lot on my mind being so deeply involved for the last weeks on issues related to Afghanistan and watching really with a lot of grief the detrimental changes taking place on the ground. And I'm in touch with Afghans every day. And as we've talked about, I know you consume a lot of news. I consume a lot of news. And I'm seeing narratives come out that really focus on U.S. failure there. And I hear a lot of blame being placed on the manner in which the U.S. withdrawal took place. And I scratch my head. Yes, we can talk about blame or 
details of how plans were made and implemented on the withdrawal. But when I review the news and the facts, here's what I see. The previous administration announced full troop withdrawal from Afghanistan in February of 2021. Then the administration changes. The new president comes in. He delays that withdrawal. He delays it by, what is it, six months, about six months to end of August. And so the information that the U.S. was leaving was being telegraphed for years. That was the whole reason of negotiating with the Taliban in the first place. So it's as if there was some kind of magical thinking taking place in the narrative that I'm seeing now of how could the U.S. abandon Afghanistan First of all, I don't regard it necessarily as an abandonment. Humanitarian aid is going to be pushed back in large sums very soon. I don't know. I'm frustrated with a sense of the narrative not reflecting the facts as I understood them, as I've read the news, and as I've watched the facts being telegraphed about timelines and what's going to happen. That's not to mitigate the tragedies that happened at the Kabul airport those last two weeks in August. Not at all. I spent an all-nighter one night with a group of Afghans who were on their way out trying to get into the Kabul airport. So was hearing firsthand what they were going through to make that entry and safe passage out. It was harrowing. Maybe it's just, George, that I don't want to accept that maybe the work that I was involved in amounted to nothing or would be qualified as worth nothing in the end. What do you think? Oh, man. There's so much I could say, so much so much more that you could say. First of all, you know, we heard from Jamal. Yeah. We heard from an Afghan. An Afghan yeah. who's not a cultural heritage specialist, who has no skin in your particular game, who said that your work mattered and that it's going to continue to matter. Because it's his country, it's his beautiful country. And so anything you did to keep the culture alive, keep the culture going, was important to him. And he thanked you for that. You have to remember that there are a lot of Afghans that feel like him, that their country matters. Work wasn't in vain. But there's the bigger story, which is who's to blame for all this. And I have a lot of feelings about this. The first feeling is this, like, I am so sick of going on the news and seeing postmortems and reports, not just from the other side of the political spectrum or different factions of the Democratic Party or from think tanks whose job it is to do this. My concern, just like your concern, has been on the here and now. Mm -hmm. And what remains the humanitarian response? There will be time for the postmortems, mm -hmm. but I'm really tired of seeing postmortems crowding out the here and now news mm -hmm. and still continuing to crowd out news about what's happening in Afghanistan outside of Kabul. We still know so little. The reports are getting better, but they're still woefully inadequate. Yeah, it's true. One of the things behind your frustration is certainly that people want to wholesale blame the Biden administration or they wholesale want to blame the U.S., mm -hmm. And we know, and our friends in Afghanistan know, and they're very honest about this, that they too are characters and actors in their own story. Mm -hmm. And we all know we could have done better. And we all know that we participated in events the way they turned out. My objection 
to what happened over the past seven weeks with our government? Well, there were two. One is that I continue to find our elected officials impervious to communication, really hard to reach. I can't get any of them to respond Mm. on where I can turn to to help people. And I find that really galling. Mm -hmm. And I'm not some unhinged crank off the street. Mm -hmm. I know my shit. But what really upsets me about our withdrawal is that as we saw the Taliban racing across Afghanistan, we did not tactically alter anything. As we saw the Taliban breaching Kabul, taking over the city, taking over the government buildings, we left our embassy and treated the airport as a note. Even when that was proven to be a bad decision and unsafe, we didn't tactically change it. My big thing is I just wanted to see tactical changes to the changing situation on the ground. And all I saw was full speed ahead. Mm -hmm. And we have a great military. We have really great people in the government. There could have been tactical adjustments and maybe we would be in a similar situation today, but maybe everything would have been less chaotic, less ugly. Maybe we wouldn't have seen young Afghans falling out of planes. Maybe we wouldn't have seen people waiting in sewage ditches for days at a time to get into the airport. There had to be a better way to do it. There just had to be. And I recognize, like you said before, that it was nothing short of miraculous that we evacuated well over 100,000 people from that one janky runway, Mm -hmm. right? I think one of the variables is that no one predicted the Kabul government was going to fall within the hours that it fell. That genuinely surprised people in the Kabul government themselves. So the tactical changes that you're wishing had taken place, now we're kind of doing the postmortem that we said we both don't really like, but... Well, yeah, because we're total hypocrites, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> but, I mean, that's sort of the wild card. That was the Joker card in all of this. Like, no one expected that Joker card to be pulled out and the Kabul government to fall within the span of six hours and Ghani to get on a plane to Tajikistan or the Gulf or wherever he went first. This has all been on my mind a lot, and I'm glad I can kind of vent with you because at my house, my kids don't really want to have me discuss this at dinner time. They'd really rather watch, you know, Top Chef or something. Wait, you watch TV while you eat dinner? Stop it. Don't judge me. <laughs> Lori, you have officially been judged. George, when your kids are teenagers, you might change your tune with everybody sitting down and eating together thing. I'm not sure you have a TV. Do you have a TV? We do have a TV. It rarely turns on. You know, everybody has a device, George, like an iPad. Mm. I don't even eat dinner with my kids, truth be told. Mm. They eat first and then I eat at like 930 at night. This is not really the topic for the podcast, like my dinner schedule. No. (laughs) Anyway. Wait, can I say though, you did make the most amazing Gruyere tart. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. I know that's a good one. Yeah. We need the recipe up on the blog. (laughs) Okay. That's a favorite. I'm glad you liked it. We all played a hand on this. The U.S. government, every single part of it. People like us that worked on development projects. We participated in it. Our Afghan friends who 
became experts in this area or that area or who worked for, let's say, the Ministry of Rural Rehabilitation and Development. Mm -hmm. We all played in it. I guess our conclusion is that this is not the time for postmortems, even as we do it a little bit here, but that we all played a part. There's no single place to point the finger. So I'm glad I get to talk to you about these things and we can kind of mutually vent because you know the timelines. We can reference the names and the places and we all watched it happen together. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. You know, we've talked about Nancy Dupree Mm. a couple of times. One of our previous discussions, I was telling you the story about this billboard campaign and that was to put billboards up all over the country. and, and then Yeah, great story. I, the billboards were supposed to be up for six months. And I remember driving past where one of the billboards had been changed, meaning somebody pulled a fast one and changed the billboard, even though we were still paying to have billboards <laughs> featuring cultural preservation. And I remember being so frustrated that the Afghan was telling me, no, madam, that billboard is still there. And I was like, no, it's not. And I went to Nancy Dupree after that and said to Nancy, Nancy, do you ever feel like you just want to leave this place? Like it's all just too crazy. Her answer surprised me, you know, because she lived probably for 50 years in Afghanistan. She was as Afghan as a non-Afghan gets. Pretty much. Yeah. And... Her answer was, ah, you know how she sort of spoke like that. She goes, ah, of course I want to leave every day. (laughs) And I was both surprised and somehow gratified by her answer that she felt the frustration that I felt, but she clearly never left because she ended up dying in Kabul. Alas. Alas, yeah. Hey, my friend, can we talk about Afghanistan's <laughs> cultural capital? Yes, Herat. I, okay, here's what I want to know. So I largely know Herat from history books, and it is like the shit. It's the place to be in history in terms of its culture and its refinement, even though it doesn't necessarily look like much today. Right. But I want to know, as somebody historically minded cultural heritage preservation specialist, archaeologist that you are, what are you picturing before you get to Herat? What do you imagine the city feels and looks like? I didn't really know what to expect. I knew I was going out to Herat. I was terrifically excited to go there, but it wasn't in my head what it was going to look like. So it had, at that time, a more languid feel than Kabul. Even the trees looked different and were kind of drapey and more shady than in Kabul. And the women wore different clothes. It had a much more Iranian influence with the long black shador or the black and white ones. So they would walk along the streets in groups and appear billowing and flowy and moving a little more slowly. And then the monuments that I visited were just spectacular. All of them fixer-uppers. But for me, that was beside the point that they were fixer-uppers. I have maybe this ability to picture what they may have looked like in their heyday rather than, say, you go to 
the center of Herat, there's all these minarets that once stood and they all look like smokestacks now, but they would have been covered in this glistening blue tile and Mm -hmm. dominated the landscape. But now they look like broken smokestacks. But I thought they looked fantastic. Well, I love that you've described historical monuments as fixer-upper. So I feel like if you do get fired, which is something that you sometimes worry about, you have a great career flipping monuments on HGTV. <laughs> That's Maybe brilliant. we'll call you Monument Flipper. <laughs> that is a fantastic idea, George. Why not? I'm going to move that up to my plan B after Home Depot. Tell us a little bit about these monuments around the city. What are they like? Where are they placed? Are there kids kicking soccer balls against the walls of a tomb? Yeah, kind of like that. Herat's a fairly big city. I don't know the population. I'm going to guess a couple of million. I'd have to look up, but it's a big, bustling city. And it's got large avenues and busy roads and markets. And the monuments, they're part of the city. There's the big Friday mosque. There's the citadel of Herat, which is at the center of the city. And then there's what's referred to as the Musala complex, which is this Timurid complex of buildings and mausoleums and these minarets, which I affectionately refer to as smokestacks and other mausoleums, cemeteries. They're all placed intermittently around modern buildings and homes and busy roads. Maybe not dissimilar to Athens, although you're Greek, you can speak better to that. I'm trying to think of an analogy, maybe like Rome, you know, when you're walking around Rome and you turn a corner and there's something that's 2000 years old. Right. Like a random column. Right. Not necessarily a whole temple, but, you know, some little piece of something that used to be much bigger. Yes. And then you turn another corner and there's a Renaissance church. Yeah. Yeah. So Herod's population is officially five to 600,000. Hmm. It's rather smaller than Kandahar and smaller than Mazar-i-Sharif, I think, as well. Yeah, I think it is smaller than Mazar. Um, That's a little smaller than I expected. But having said that, official statistics are always a bit tricky in Afghanistan because usually the populations of urban centers in particular are, are swelled by people who are there for opportunity. And so there are times when it's underestimated by 30 40%. Yeah, and there's never been an official census done in Afghanistan, so it's another issue. So when you're going to Herat, what's the mission? What do you know you're going to do, and what do you hope you're going to do? So the mission had a couple of objectives. It was to first see the citadel of Herat, which the United States had been providing support for its restoration already for well over a year, a couple of years prior to my arriving in Herat, and to go check on the status of that work. And then, like I did when I went to other cities across Afghanistan for the first time, was to evaluate the monumental landscape and to see, are there other sites out here where the United States could also push some support for preservation? And so it was not just to look at monuments, but to meet with, say, the governor of Herat, with whom I met at that time, and with local officials and a few archaeologists and some civil society leaders, as well as maybe squeeze in a visit to a carpet shop and see if there was a carpet I could purchase or, I mean, the carpet thing, that was an aside. 
and not at all why I went out there. But it was to understand better the operational environment and the monumental environment. I love the way that, yeah, the disclaimer, I did not go there to carpet shop. You were totally okay sharing the story about how you ditched the university in Kabul and the safety of its perimeter to go have lunch at some random Korean restaurant in Kabul in Nancy Dupree. But that's what I like about you. You cannot say no. To, you, yeah, you cannot say no cannot to Nancy. cannot say no to Nancy Dupree, yeah. Okay, so the Citadel then. So when were you there? Because you said the work had started a couple years before. Yeah, my first visit to Herat was in early November of 2010. So I had already been working in Afghanistan for a few months. And I was chomping at the bit to get to Herat. And it just couldn't come together because you've got to coordinate with 15 people and schedule it and make sure when you arrive, there's a place for you to sleep. I mean, there's lots of planning that has to take place. Describe what the Citadel looked like as you approached it, as you walked up the ramparts, as you walked through the internal area. The circumstances of my visiting the Citadel were very fortunate because of various scheduling conflicts. I was sent to look at the Citadel by myself. Other people that I was with had other activities that they needed to do. That's a good thing. It was for me. So I could take it all in myself without having to answer questions, which I might not have known the answer to, or really talk to anyone. You could just make it up. I could just make it up. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the timing of my visit was also very fortuitous. It happened to be in the late afternoon. And when you're in the interior of the Herat Citadel in the late afternoon, the setting sun creates the most beautiful play of light and shadow within the citadel that was completely by luck that I was there and the place was nearly deserted so I was walking around I had a security minder but he was a distance away and not really with me he was not right on my side and so I was able to explore in what felt very personal to me I was practically alone. There were no other visitors, except as I approached the highest rampart to explain, this is a site where it has enormous exterior walls. I'm talking like 12, 15, 18 feet thick exterior walls. And you enter in through a double story, like this magnificent doorway with one of those drawbridge doors that comes down covering a moat. Yeah. So you enter, you're transitioning into this space and then it opens up into a kind of open area and there's a small amphitheater that was created as part of the restoration and these hallways and alleys and it's about the size of a stadium. So to give you a sense of the scale and I walk up to the far end the upper rampart and the interior and I see a lone couple who are clearly not Afghan and they're very tall and very slender and which must have stood out because they were casting shadows that looked also very tall and slender because of the sunlight and the way the sunlight was coming in and I'm by myself and I walked up to them and asked if they wouldn't mind to take my picture which was something kind of uncharacteristic for me Very, yeah. And it turned out it was the French ambassador and his wife 
who were also there for a visit. And they had their own security minders around them who don't figure prominently in my memory. Like I remember this as a very empty place. And they were gracious and lovely and introduced themselves with no pretense. And of course, they were happy to take my picture and I took their picture and then we went about our business. So that aside, and I, I don't think I ever saw that. Hey, did again. you put in a good word for Philippe? <laughs> I don't think I did. Right, your French archaeologist friend from Dafa. I don't remember it like, hey, have you had the cheese at Philippe's place? <laughs> <laughs> But this was the French ambassador, not the consul general in Herat. No. I don't even know if France had a consulate in Herat at the they time. They didn't. No, they didn't. In fact, the Italians were the most prominent presence in Herat at that time. The Italian military, I, I met with a couple of times out there. But I don't know why the French ambassador was in Herat, but there he was with his lovely wife. That's a footnote in my visit. What I'm trying to explain to you, first impressions mean a lot, right? My first impression of the Herat Citadel was very formative for me in that I got the luck of being there in the late afternoon when the light was such that it created this dramatic feel of the architecture, perhaps as it was intended. And I was going to ask about that if you, if you mm -hmm. think that the architects had meant for the light coming through the West over the Iranian border to create that effect. Yes, but when it was built, there wasn't that Iranian border. So That's true, yeah. It was all part of the same empire. Yeah. But nevertheless, and I did I did buy a carpet. Cool. Oh, but it was <laughs> well, at night. It was, you. it was at night after hours, like it wasn't on work time. After 5 p.m., okay. Yeah, it was like after dinner, yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Monuments Woman with Laura Tedesco. I'm your host, George Gavrilis. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To stay in touch, also follow us on Instagram at The Monuments Woman. Join us next week when we dive deeper. This show is produced by Christian D. Brun and May 11 Project. It is recorded by Audovita Studios and edited by Sean Hedinger and Greg Williams. The theme song is This Love by Ariana Delvalari featuring Solar Nader. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.